How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. You're listening to Michael Easley in Context. I'm your co-host, Hannah Seymour, and we've got another Ask Dr. E episode for you today. So let me ask you, Dr. E, how you doing? I'm doing great. We've got so many questions. We're never going to get them all answered. I know. know. We're going to try them. And we're going to try to do less questions, shorter episodes, and try to do more. So, Are you implying that I talk a long time? No, 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 never, 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 (laughs) never. So let's jump in. I do. I do. So... But yes, get to work. So we got a question (laughs) from a long-term friend from Grand Prairie, Texas, and he is currently setting the qualifications of eldership at the church where he is an elder. And his question is, I'm setting the qualification of, quote, one woman man for eldership. The topic I'm studying is an elder can never have been divorced. And he adds additional context that their church documents make a claim that if a man was divorced before he came to Christ, he is disqualified. So, Dr. E., what are your thoughts on this? Uh, great to hear from you. This just warmed my heart when I saw his name on the Ask Dr. E. Let's talk about three references right out of the get-go. Titus 1.6, 1 Timothy 3.2, and 1 Timothy 3.12. Let me read those. Titus 1.6, if any man is above approach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, so forth, 1 Timothy 3, 2, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. And then again, Paul writes in 1 Timothy, same chapter 3, verse 12, deacons must be husbands of only one wife. And the word only there in the numeric standard is a suppleted word. It's not there. In other words, deacons must be husbands of one wife. So this is simply a one-woman kind of man is what a lot of interpretations mm-hmm. are going to. Sure. Obviously, not a polygamist, Obviously. not a bigamist. Yeah. This one-woman kind of man trend has gotten more and more common. Never divorced is the question. And there's some other views that we won't discuss. But that sort of set the traps for what does this mean? Do you want to jump in here or let me just keep rambling? No, I, want you okay. to keep rambling. Okay. I don't even know where to ask you. Okay. First of all, I find that in this divorce remarriage discussion, the most overlooked thing, is in Matthew 19, verses 8 and 9. And we call this the exception clause, which I think is a poor title for this verse. Let me read the verse, and you'll see why I believe it's important and why the word exception clause comes together. This is Jesus speaking to them. He said, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So the except for immorality is where we get the exception clause. So then we go down this this discussion of what constitutes immorality. Is it a one-time affair, ongoing affair, multiple affairs? Is it pornography? I mean, this thing is is a very broad, sweeping topic. But what I want to focus on is when Jesus says, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. So stop right there. This wasn't God's plan. He got tired of them bugging him. If you remember, is it chapter 18 where they're coming to him in so many 
Uh, he can't see them all. His, his father-in-law, Jethro, selves, says, you know, break this thing up and have other faithful people deal with the conflicts. But even in the Exodus and post-Exodus, we've got this issue going on where people want to divorce their spouses. So this is nothing new, but he permitted it. It wasn't a saying, it wasn't God told him, okay, let them get divorced. It was permission. And I think it's striking that Jesus says in one sentence, because of your hard heartedness, Moses permitted you. But it wasn't supposed to be that way. So set that as a foundation. And is that the same context where Jesus is saying, if you even look at another woman, you've committed adultery in your heart? Like that'd where he's be, heightened kind of, you're all big fat sinners. So yeah, that'd be more uh, six, seven, eight in the, okay. in, in the Sermon on the Mount context. Okay. You've heard it said, I say to you, you've heard it said, yep. and that has to do with righteousness. Mm. How do you know you're righteous? Beware of practicing your righteousness before men. And then he talks about when you give, when you pray, when you fast. You don't look like it, in other words. But he turns the heat up there, and he says, the law says this, but I tell you. And essentially, he's saying you cannot be righteous apart from me. You said you didn't have an affair, but if you looked at her with intent, you had an affair. So that's Christ's point Got there. It. This point here is where he's being set up, basically, to talk about this whole divorce thing. Now, what's interesting is this word, the stubbornness of your heart or the hardness of your heart, Stubbornness is a good word. It's it's the word where we get the cardia is the word heart and sclerosis of the of the liver cirrhosis sclerosis where there's a hardening is your heart got hard and you got stubborn and cold and obstinate toward God. So if if we we start there, I don't want to be kind or or harsh or over the top. But let's, first of all, lay the foundation because we're talking about divorce remarriage. Lay the foundation. It wasn't supposed to be that way. Does that mean people get di- shouldn't get divorced? Well, yes and no. We've seen it from antiquity, and we'll see it until Christ returns. People are sinful. Our own sin nature. Men and women hurt each other. We don't keep our commitments. We have affairs. We lie. We cheat. We grow out of love, quote, unquote, whatever that means. And so divorce is there. It is not an unforgivable sin. Right. We, we have to say that because there are some who feel shame and guilt and there will be heartache and there'll be things to work through when you go through a divorce. But I'm just trying to make the intent. The other thing I was talking to a guy recently who's trying to convince me he should get a divorce. And I said, you know, it's interesting. The only thing God really asks man to offer in a covenant relationship is marriage. Hmm. He doesn't ask man to keep his salvation. God does that. He doesn't ask man to forgive his own sins. God does that. God does all the work. He doesn't ask man to do anything other than to obey him faithfully, but he does ask him to keep this one promise, which is illustrative of Christ in the church. The Bible opens with a wedding, has story and narrative and principles and bad illustrations about marriage, and it ends with a marriage with the Lamb of God and his church. So this isn't just, oh, by the way, covenant. This is an important picture of Christ's love for his church. So that is the foundation. Now, let's jump to the office and role of elder big turn, but we need to go here. So both terms are used in the New Testament, presbyteros and episkopos. Presbyteros sounds like? Presbyter, presbyterian. Episkopos sounds like? Episcopalian, episcopal. Right, so a presbyteros tends to be older 
And in my word study, it might mean older and more mature. Episcopos scopos is a scope, like a telescope or a periscope or a you know, microscope. You're looking, and epi means over, so an overseer. So we have this presbyteros, this older, mature, and this overseer. Now, those are offices. They're not gifts. It's a very important distinction in the New Testament. The pastor-teacher is a gifting but elder is an office. Pastor's not an office. No, nope. It's a gifting. It's a gifting. So there is some interchangeability in those two words, sure. and I think you could argue contextually uh, this lead teaching, senior teaching pastor, or whatever your church might call him, that person is likely an elder. Right. But the gifting is the shepherd, pastor, teacher. The office is the elder, episcopos, presbyteros, which, by the way, presbyter has a session. The Anglican bishop traditions have bishops and overseers, right. okay? And the, then when you get to diocese where you have like a mother church with a lot of daughter churches, that episcopos will be overseen. That's where they get this language built. Okay, now, one time in our New Testament, we have the words used in the same sentence, and it's in First Peter chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 together, and they underscore both presbyteros and episcopos. And he uses the phrase, verse 3, proving to be examples to the flock. Examples to the flock. So when you're going to make this man, and I'm sorry, I'm a literalist and I followed the New Testament, women do not have the office of elder. You have to do some serious uh, gymnastics from a textual standpoint, and often it's done from a cultural standpoint. But the Bible teaches that the role of elder is reserved for men, and it's reserved for very few men, not all men, just very few. So let's acknowledge that this is some good and godly men, not all, who may aspire, Paul says, to the office of overseer. So we've got this Big picture, we got the qualifications for these elders. We have this phrase, husband of one wife, used by Paul. And then we fast forward, and we're asking the question, who's going to shepherd God's church? So I've been in churches now on and off 40 years. I was adding up the other day close to not quite 100 men that I've served with. Now, understand one church I served had 50 elders at one point. So that that sort of tips the, the scales a little bit with other churches. But that said, this was a discussion in every one of those churches. Sure. There were some who were divorced or remarried. Uh, some might be a pre-conversion divorced or remarriage. They weren't Christians. They yeah. got young, married young. I had a friend who went off to Vietnam when he was 19. He was not a Christian. He and his wife had gotten married. She was pregnant. He goes off to war, literally comes back. She has got another child, another man. They get divorced. They're still teenagers. And she goes on to marry another person. He gets remarried to another person who's not a Christian. They came to Christ later. They have other children together. So you have situations like that. You have abandonment where, let's say in this case, we're talking about an elder. The wife leaves the husband. I have a friend whose wife left him, and she decided she was a lesbian. So she left the marriage after 28 years, and she moves in with her girlfriend, and that changes that family dynamic forever. Sometimes it's adultery, ongoing, apathy, you name it. So a person leaves, and then what does the man do? If he remarries, that's where we're at. So this is a long introduction to the can question. Can you be an elder? Can you be an elder? I would say pause because of this phrase when Peter says, proving to be an example of the flock. Now, 
argue with me. You could say, well, before the new Christ. I mean, that can be an example. That was before the new Christ. Because well, And all the other Pauline qualifications of being an elder that's like filled with the spirit and all these things, like they can't be any of that before they're a believer. So how could they be held? So the overall character is this word unimpeachable or above reproach. And then it's explained in that hospitable husband of one wife, not yeah. addicted to much wine, uh, manages his own household well, etc. So, so the above approach is the big explanation. Yeah. All these are, let's say, further explanations of what that means. So my question is, let's make an exception for any one of these. Then we have a person come to the elders. They're having trouble in their marriage. Or you have another person on staff, and they've been divorced and remarried. You've got this one person now on the elder board who's had a divorce remarriage situation. How are you going to handle it? I'm not saying you can't or you shouldn't. And I'm not saying life isn't messy. People throw that at my face all the time. Life's messy. Well, so what? Make it messier? I mean, that's a strange piece of logic. But in any event, do I want to spend the time, capital, emotion, energy of shepherding the flock of God, proving to be an example, always having to explain the backstory of the divorce and remarriage. And I'm not saying you you can't or shouldn't. Mm -hmm. That's the question I am asking. I can't be a quarterback. I can't be a seven-foot, four-inch tall center for the NBA. I can't be a neurosurgeon. I can't be a professional musician. Lord knows, and you'll remind me I can't sing. Uh, There are certain things I can't do. That doesn't mean I'm less a person or unimportant. Or God can't use you. Right. So I just think we need to hold this office, not higher, but separately and say, who are you going to put in that role as an office, not a gifting, as an office to shepherd the flock of God, not your church, his church, and what kind of marriage or family? Now, we can have really good guys divorced through marriage of a terrible husband and wife, then you're going to make him an elder? No. Right. So- Push back on me. What about what am I missing, Hannah? Well, okay. So I, I I hear the big question is, are they above reproach? And but then I think that Dale's specific question is, they weren't a believer. Can you can you hold anyone? I mean, you can't. You can't hold someone to a standard of biblical principles before they knew Christ. True, but that doesn't mean everybody is qualified for everything. Is my point. I, I I just, you know, again, I know this is strength and gnats, but when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ that he died for, that he bought, that he established, to me, we want uh, men and women who are faithful examples. And that doesn't mean, and, and by the way, let's say you have a church of, I have a friend who's a church in 20 some thousand in another part of the country. They only have seven elders. The church we were with in Northern Virginia was at its, at its height, say 6,000 plus they had 50 elders. You know, churches do this differently. It's not, right. but, but at the end of the day, I'm just saying I got enough trouble and why add to the, now I, I had a higher position a while back, a few years ago. I know the man, we went to the same seminary. I know a situation and we were considering hiring him on, on a staff position. And I asked him, do you want to have to defend this situation every time a single person comes to you or a divorced person getting, getting divorced? Well, you got divorced and see, God blessed you. And that unintended consequence might give that person permission. Now, I'm not responsible for that person's decision. I just feel it's a little tighter package to be able to say, no, for the leadership of this church, and I would also say for the 
teaching pastor role, even though it's a gifting, not an office, you're putting it forward as the teaching authority of the church. And I take a long, hard pause. Would you let a divorced, remarried person in that role? Churches do it all the time. Question came to me. I'm giving you my $5 answer, not a two-cent answer. It's a $5 answer. And asking the question, how do you want to lead and shepherd the flock of God and be an example to them? You could push back and say, well, we're an example because he handled it well. Mm -hmm. He's been remarried 20 years. His kids love the Lord. Fine. Do you want to rehearse that? Because you'll have to. And, oh, my brother was divorced, remarried. He's really involved in the student ministry. I'm going to put him forth as an elder. I don't know the backstory there. So this just opens, um, and it's not saying you don't open those questions. It just adds a layer to me that um, is unnecessary. Okay, final pushback. We've already spent too much time on this question, but this is what happens when it's you and me. I don't know if it's in the same passage, but doesn't in somewhere in in Paul's letters say, because you alluded to it, something about like, your household, something about your children. Manage you know. your household well. Uh-huh. So so you've got, you know, prodigal children. You've got a drug addict. You've got, yep. you know, whatever. All, all these things that your kids can do to break your heart and completely rebel against the Lord. Is that the same? Great question. I asked this question of a church when I was in seminary because uh, one of the leader's sons got in trouble. And I remember the teaching elder, as he was referred to in that day, turning on his heels and saying to me, Management means how do you deal with something when it goes wrong. If you're managing a well-oiled machine, you're not managing a well-oiled machine. You manage a machine when it breaks. You manage a machine when there's a problem in supply chain. So if I'm managing my household well, how do I deal with my son or daughter who's using drugs? How do I deal with my son or daughter who's sexually active, my daughter who comes home pregnant, fill in the blanks? So the managerial aspect, God knows we can't force our children to be good, mature Christians. Right. Uh, they're free agents. You heard me say that once before, right? So if your children are free agents, you're managing the situation as best you can. They're going to make their decisions. Yeah. So how do I manage it? And I would say if a child is disruptive and a prodigal, does that husband lead his family to say, you know, we love so-and-so, but they can't live with us anymore because they're, they're living in sin. It's affecting all of us. They've chosen a path differently than we've tried to train them to love God. And in that regard, you can't live here anymore because you're disrupting a whole system because of your willful choice to sin. I think that's good management. Hard, but no one said this was going to be easy. Ain't that the truth? Okay, question number two is about Luke 6.29. So would you read Luke 6.29 for us? And then I'll ask the question. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Okay. So how do you reconcile that and have healthy boundaries with those who use you for their own personal gain and hurt you just because they can? How do you reconcile obeying God and denying oneself, taking up your cross daily, and protecting oneself from those who use this passage of scripture against you, once again, for personal gain? Well, First of all, we have to take about five steps back. Um, thanks for the question. This is totally taken out of context. And that's one of the problems when people, if indeed this person used Luke 6.29 in someone's face, then that's a hard 
a hard response just from a, you know, let's forget the details of the, of the question right now. And they throw a verse in my face. What do I do? And, and to my, my response to that is generically, you're kind, you're loving, you try to appeal to them. You're not going to chapter and verse your way out of the no, arguments. Thank you. I'll pray about it. Right. Bye. Right. right. <laughs> well, she said with contempt, uh, but <laughs> so, so, but let me, let me address the, the context for just a moment. This is the Beatitudes. And this section is sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain. And the Lord is contrasting two kinds of people here. There are those who present or appear poor and oppressed over against those whom by worldly standards are well off. So that's the group he's speaking to in these two categories. Jesus is saying in broad strokes term, you live in such a way, no matter how you're treated, that reflects your Christ-likeness. Yep. You live in a kind way. Uh, so you're going to suffer. You're going to be disabused. Can you live kindly? Can you encourage others to follow Christ? So that's you got to keep that in mind with the Beatitudes, or you're going to go, or the Sermon on the Plain, or you're going to be very conflicted. You're, you're going to be nude. One, one, one commentator said this passage would make no sense if it was literal, out of context, because you wouldn't have any clothes on. So and it's pejorative, but it's an accurate. And it's they an didn't accurate. have a closet full of there clothes like we do today. No. So. <laughs> Let me read a portion from Daryl Bach's excellent commentary on Luke here. He talks about three examples. First, if one strikes you on the cheek, offer him the other. Probably the context of religious persecution, the slap from a synagogue, so you're being put out of synagogue. The conceptual examples, both violent attacks, and he gives some other verses. A slap would be delivered by the back of the hand, though the context here might mean something else, rejection. Jesus' point is even in the midst of that rejection, you continue to minister to others. Second, Jesus gives an example of someone stealing one's outer garment. He advises them, give them the undershirt too. The point is that one should not seek revenge, but remain exposed and be willing to take more risks. And he applies that to different situations and acts as well. Third is being generous and not keeping account. Disciples should be marked by a genuine readiness to meet needs. So to the one who begs, you give them. The one who takes, don't seek to get it back. Here again, he's probably referring to almsgiving. Uh, resources are not to be hoarded, but generously dispensed or shared. Paul reflects the same attitude in other places. So anyway, I, I think it's, it's very important that context covers a multitude of interpretational sins. Back to the question, though, you know, when people throw chapter and verse at you, uh, you're not going to chapter and verse your way out of it. Right. So you're going to have to say, take a deep breath. I love you. I care about you. Uh, I can agree to disagree on certain things, but you know I'm asking you to treat me in the same way that you, you expect to be treated, and and I think that's a fair way. Now, if a person is irrational, and we can be that way toward other people, totally, then you know it's sort of a moot point here. You're not going to again. You can't quote a verse. Oh, thank you. Hit myself on the forehead. I should have known that. Right. I shouldn't been this right. way. So anyway, that's about all I got to say about that. No, that's great. All right, last question for this episode. It comes from Matthew 27, verses 52 and 53. The verse is, The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, after Christ's resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. This always just blows my mind, and I kind of laugh because I don't know what else to do. This is crazy. So the question from Lemmy is, who were the saints that were raised in Matthew? <laughs> <laughs> and they gave us a Gospel Coalition link that was quite interesting. Uh, the subtitle was 
weirdest passages in Matthew totally. or something like so that. Weird. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. All right. Again, context covers a multitude of interpretational sins. When Jesus dies, there are three events that happen. The curtain is torn yeah. from top to bottom, which yeah. is a, a lovely sermon. Uh, secondly, Christ's death, the, uh, an earthquake occurs, uh-huh. and the earthquake splits rock. Uh-huh. And so that's we've got the curtain torn, we've got rock splitting, and then these tombs of many holy, righteous people are opened. And I'm going to argue that's in the Jerusalem Cemetery area. Different Bibles have different tacks on it. It seems as though... Um, and Matthew's the only account that even says this, correct? correct? Yeah. Uh, well, there, there is an inference in Mark 15, 38, and Luke 23, 44, I think, also. Um, so the, the view probably is these people were resurrected when Jesus died, and they went to Jerusalem after Christ's resurrection. So it, it talks about many tombs were opened. And and by the way, there's not just one resurrection. There's several in the New Testament. There's several resurrections. And the sequence of timing can be a little tricky without some careful Bible study. The text says, were raised to life and came out of the tombs. Uh, The tombs are are broken open again by this earthquake, and they probably went back to the holy city being Jerusalem. So we think of Lazarus, Jairus' daughter in Luke chapter 8, the widow of Nain's son in Luke 7. These were people that died, and then they were resurrected again. So it it is a curious passage, but it's also intriguing that when he's raised, this is like, see, other people are in fact going to be raised. So to me, it's kind of proof in the resurrection times two, because now we're seeing not only did he overcome death, but people around him also overcame death. Anytime I read anything about a person being resurrected, I always hear you in the back of my head, like, they got the short end of the stick, or they got the wrong deal. Like, they had died, and they were reunited with Christ, and now they're back on this. They're back on earth, and they got to die again. Yeah, Yeah. I'm in a Bible study right now, and and, a comment was made just about how in Judaism, and really when you look through the Bible, birthdays aren't celebrated. It's death days are are what's celebrated in the Jewish culture. And in the Bible, there are a few birthdays mentioned, but most, I mean, when you read through Genesis, it's, and he died at such and such age, and he died, and and it was, you, not that you wanted to die, but you were celebrating this. They are free from this sinful, evil, sad earth. (laughs) And they are now in eternity in in glory and to, you know, have to show back up on this earth. That is kind of a bummer. I I would hope to think that those individuals know what's coming and they're going to be, you know, fine with it. But it just, it strikes me with Lazarus was like, what a, what a bum rap. (laughs) (laughs) You gotta die again. Anyway. All right. Well, we are going to wrap this episode for now and we will be back with another Ask Dr. E. I don't know, a few weeks, a few months. Hey, <laughs> hey, hey, hey. No, that's no, that's no comment on you. That's a comment <laughs> on me and Casey and when we release things. Thanks, guys, for listening. Thanks for writing in. We do want your questions, so send them in at question at michaelincontext.com. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters. 